Welcome back to another podcast episode of Veteran Oversight Now, an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. I'm your host, Fred Baker. Each month on this podcast, we'll bring you highlights of the OIG's recent oversight activities and interview key stakeholders in the office's critical work for veterans. Joining me today is Dr. Beth Winter. Dr. Winter is a psychiatrist located in our Baltimore Office of Healthcare Inspections. She is incredibly accomplished, having worked in private practice, community settings, and academia, and was the co-director of the prestigious Johns Hopkins Hospital Anxiety Disorders Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Winter. Hi, thank you so much, Fred. It is certainly a pleasure to, to have you here. We're, we're here to talk a little bit about a report that we recently published on a very important topic. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about you, uh, your, your path to the OIG and your role here. So uh, give me a little bit about your, 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 your history, how you came about uh, becoming interested in being a doctor, how you became interested in being at the PAOIG, um, uh, and, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you do here. Okay. Wow, how I wanted to be a doctor. That's going back a ways. <laughs> so how far back did it go? When did you know that you wanted to be a, a doctor? I knew I wanted to do something healthcare related uh, from childhood, really. Uh, but initially, I was actually interested in becoming a veterinarian and specifically an exotic animal veterinarian. I actually worked at a local zoo when I was in high school. Um with the veterinarian there and sort of had that experience. But then I went away to college and, um, you know, I went to, I went to Johns Hopkins. They did not have a pre-veterinary program, (laughs) Uh, but I got more and more interested in human physiology and human psychology. Um, I majored in cognitive science and sort of gradually switched over to thinking more about becoming a people doctor instead of an animal doctor. So tell me a little bit about your childhood as, as it relates to wanting to be a vet. What, what sparked that interest? Uh, I think every kid loves animals or gets excited about animals in some way. Uh, I always had animals in my life. Um, uh, I lived in Texas for nine years and we always had uh, dogs. We had a cat. There were horses uh, at my neighbors. There were there were always animals around. I ended up moving to New Jersey, and uh, in New Jersey, gosh, I we had fish, we had hamsters, we had rabbits, we had a cat, we had two dogs, a bird, and a hedgehog. <laughs> so. I was always, always surrounded by animals and interested in them and uh, excited by working with them. So at this zoo, <laughs> yes. what was what was the most exotic animal that you worked worked with? So uh, it was the turtleback zoo in, uh, in, in New Jersey. And I don't know if it was the most exotic, but my favorite was a penguin um, named Gorbachev. And the penguin, <laughs> the penguin, you know, spent a lot of time in the infirmary, unfortunately. What, what, what year was this? <laughs> uh, this was 1995, 96. Yeah, how, how did I know yeah. that? Okay, go ahead. Um, 
So, you know, so the penguin named Gorbachev. The penguin named Gorbachev. So unfortunately, Gorbachev spent a lot of time in the infirmary, and so uh, <laughs> he and I had a lot of time be- to become friendly. Uh, and really, Gorbachev was a lot like um, a feathered dog. I mean, he he you know Gorbachev would follow me around the infirmary, and you know, sort of was was always sort of honking and clacking at me, and um, you know, was a great buddy <laughs> to have around uh, when I was at the zoo. So what 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 other what was your role there? Yeah, it wasn't uh, <laughs> um, it wasn't anything particularly glamorous. I mean, I was still in high school, so uh, you know, wasn't working sort of one on one with the animals. wasn't really able to help out with any kind of um, technical veterinary care or anything like that. So it was a lot of cleaning, um, and it was a lot of feeding, uh, but it was time with animals and that was, that was really all that mattered to me. Okay. So you, uh, went to medical school. I did. So for, uh, undergraduate, I went to Johns Hopkins, which uh, at least at the time did not have a pre-veterinary track. Um, you know, but I knew I was going to do something biologically related and I always figured I could take pre-vet classes in the summers or something like that. Um, but I became very interested in cognitive science and spent more and more time learning about human psychology and human cognition and human physiology and ended up deciding that that was where I wanted to focus my efforts and decided to apply to medical school. And I was lucky enough that at Hopkins I had the opportunity to participate in research as an undergrad. So. Uh, I did research with a uh, cognitive neuropsychologist on the Hopkins undergraduate campus and with a neurologist at the Hopkins Hospital campus and got to participate in, you know, all kinds of interesting, you know, preclinical and clinical activities that really sort of fed into that desire to go to medical school and be a neurologist actually, is what I originally thought I wanted to be. And what changed your mind? So in the first year of medical school, we had an intro to psychiatry course. And, you know, we had lectures, big lectures, just like for the rest of our courses. But we also had small groups where a preceptor would come in and they would bring volunteer patients in to those small groups and do these interviews so that we could watch that experience and learn from how sort of these master clinicians were engaging with patients in this way. And um, I know you know this, Fred, and people who know me know this, but I love stories. I love narrative. I love storytelling. And psychiatry is... I believe, the most narrative form of medicine. And I really became entranced by that and by um, the care and the miraculous work that was being done by these psychiatrists and decided, nope, no more neurology for me. Psychiatry it is. That's what I'm going to do. What were you hoping to do with that? Um, I wasn't sure. Not all psychiatrists have a specialty. Um, Most are actually general psychiatrists. 
it wasn't until I got into, uh, you know, sort of the meat of my psychiatry residency that I really got very interested in anxiety disorders specifically and um, also mood disorders. And, and where, did, where did that take you? My original plan after graduating residency was actually uh, to move to London. <laughs> I had been accepted to King's College London to do a master's degree in medicine and literature. And I was working out. Wow, two loves. <laughs> and I was working out um, a position with the Institute of Psychiatry in London to do an anxiety disorders fellowship. And sort of through a series of unfortunate events, um, I wasn't able to move to London to do those things uh, and sort of career moved in a different direction. But that was where originally it was going to take me. So how did you end up uh, going from there to coming to the OIG? So when I say my career moved in a different direction, it sort of, uh, it wasn't a linear direction. I left, I graduated residency and uh, opened a private practice where I was doing not only medication management, but also psychotherapy, which was really important to me to be able to offer both. And after a couple of years in private practice, I was asked to come back to Hopkins part-time to be the co-director of the Anxiety Disorders Clinic there. And uh, I did go back very happily. I love teaching. I love working with residents. I love training them how to do psychotherapy and combined medication management. So that was a really easy decision. But after several years, I ended up leaving private practice and taking a job as a medical director of a dual diagnosis treatment program while still working at Hopkins. Um, and it was a totally different experience than being in private practice. Uh, this you know, dual diagnosis program was outpatient um, and had a boarded partial hospitalization program. And I learned a ton about administration skills, about uh, management skills, about working with a board of directors, about, you know, handling a budget of millions of dollars, about program development, and got really excited about stretching myself in that way in a totally different aspect of medicine that I hadn't really considered before. And then from there, I went to the University of Maryland, where I was a psychiatrist uh, on the inpatient mental health unit. Again, very different from outpatient work, either at the dual diagnosis program or private practice. And I have to say with full respect to psychiatrists who work on inpatient mental health units, the pace is grueling. Um, and it can be occasionally disheartening. And working on the inpatient mental health unit there, really, I got very interested in thinking about the social determinants of health that impacted my patients and all of the things that were happening to them before they came into the hospital and after they left the hospital that were totally out of my control as their clinician that had dramatic impact on their mental health, 
on their ability to access treatment, on their ability to remain in treatment, and knew that that was something that I wanted to explore further. So at that point, I had worked in private practice, um, you know, doing therapy and medication management. I had run a dual diagnosis program and learned lots of administrative skills. I had worked on an inpatient mental health unit and gotten familiar with hospital administration and with uh, hospital practices and begun thinking seriously about more widespread social determinants of health and how they impact patients. And I decided I wanted to find something that married all of those interests and skill sets. And I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> um, and so that prompted a not insignificant search on my part for what for that next step in my career was going to be. And when I found the listing for a physician at the VAOIG, it seemed like an opportunity to pull these very seemingly disparate experiences that I had together and make something cohesive and really meaningful that I could move forward with. So many people who come to the VAOIG have a have some type of intersection with veterans. What or a connection. Did you have any previous connection with veterans or veteran care before coming? In terms of veteran care, uh, my medical internship um, had an agreement with the Bronx VA. And so I did spend some rotations out there. So I did have some direct veteran care experience. Um, and in terms of other connections with veterans, uh, my grandfather was in the Air Force and my father was Navy. And so, you know, we have military service members in my family. And so um, veterans felt like a population that not only could I relate to, but that I cared very deeply for. You bring a lot of experience, right? A lot of, a lot of varied experience to the table. Would you say that there's anything unique about what you do here because it's specific to veteran care? That is interesting. Um, I think that I think that veterans are a unique population. I think that the stressors that they undergo from the moment that they sign up to the moment that they separate from military service um, is unparalleled, really. I, I can't imagine sort of any other situation in which uh, people have those kind of collective um, experiences together. And I think that they truly shape people, whether, you know, I think overwhelmingly, hopefully, uh, for the better. But unfortunately, there are often extremely traumatic events that occur that can also shape people. And so I do think that that unique collective experience of being a veteran and having served in the military um, is, is very different from anything else that I've encountered in my career. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Winter. Let's, uh, so we're here to talk about the report, uh, Deficiencies in Lethal Means Safety Training, Firearms Access Assessment, and Safety Planning for Patients with Suicidal Behaviors by Firearms. It was published in uh, November 17, 2022. Before this report was published, you actually wrote a, a white paper on the topic a few years earlier. Can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, before I speak to that, though, I do want to acknowledge by name the absolutely amazing team that I worked with in producing this report, Dr. Terry Julian, Dr. Amber Singh, Stephanie Beers, Kelly Touré, and Dr. Danette Johnson. These women and I, you know, really labored over this report um, in order to produce something, I hope, uh has significant impact, and I could not have done it without them. Uh, but it did have its genesis uh, in this in this white paper that you mentioned. So back in 2019, there was unfortunately a series of veteran suicides on campus suicides uh, that garnered a lot of media attention, and so the other psychiatrists in Ojai and I wanted to look and see whether there were any themes that connected these suicides and, and something that we should be considering or looking out for. And really, the only common thread that we found was that these were overwhelmingly firearm-related suicides. And sadly, that shouldn't be surprising considering almost 70% of veteran deaths by suicide are firearm related. But it was still something that I felt was important and something we needed to be talking about and thinking about. And so I wrote this white paper looking at uh, firearm related suicide, lethal means access, lethal means safety counseling, and a history of lethal means related legislation and the impact that it had on suicide prevalence. So tell me a little bit about the outcomes of this. Uh, uh, how, how long did it take you to produce uh, this white paper and what, what was the end state? What were the outcomes of it? So it was a large literature review. Um, it took me several months to complete and polish and it was shared with Ojai leadership and uh, with Mr. Missile. And while we all agreed on, obviously, the gravity and the importance of the topic, we couldn't necessarily wrap our arms around exactly what project we wanted to grow out of this white paper and out of this topic. And so it was sort of uh, decided that it would be something we'd continue to talk about. And during while I was writing this white paper, I had a few exploratory conversations with people at VHA who were working on staff trainings related to lethal means access and lethal means safety counseling. And so I knew that VHA was also interested in this topic and that they were also interested in thinking about how to make an impact in this area. And so it was conversation with Dr. Terry Julian and I, in which we were, you know, thinking about this and really trying to figure out how, what angle we could approach this project from. 
And we decided to think about staff training, how the staff training was implemented, and to think about the perspectives of staff who were actually having these conversations with veterans. And the review that we did grew from there. I want to be clear about what we're talking about. What, uh, and I want to use a few uh, facts from the report. Uh, Non-veteran firearm-involved suicide deaths uh, decreased from 2001 to 2019, while firearm-involved suicide deaths rose 3% among male veterans and 13% among female veterans. Uh, 85%, about 85% of individuals who attempt suicide with firearms uh, die from their inner uh, injury, uh, and, and specific to this report, the time interval between deciding to act and attempting suicide can be just five or ten minutes. And, and this this report emphasizes that that some some relatively simple interventions can increase the time between the decision to act and the act itself, uh, and and that that alone can be critical in preventing suicide. Correct? Yes. Yeah. That's correct. And that is, that's not just unique to this report. That has been uh, played out, you know, across academic literature um, and, and been shown to be over and over again. So can you speak to those interventions? Can, can you illustrate? Because we use a lot of, of, of medical terminology in the report, but, but what does it actually look like? So we've, I've been careful to use the language lethal means access because while firearms are the most lethal method of suicide, they are not the only method of suicide. And so when you think about uh, suicide and access to methods of suicide, you also have to consider other methodologies like uh, overdose on medication um, or some other kind of poison ingestion you have to think about um, strangulation by hanging. You have to think about um, self-inflicted injury like cutting, for example. Sure. And so sure. lethal means access is meant to encompass all of those things, including firearms. And you are exactly right. Over and over again, um, interviews with people who have survived a significant suicide attempt reveals that, as you said, the time between making the ultimate decision to act on thoughts of suicide and actually attempting the act itself is extremely short. Five minutes, so much shorter than you would imagine. Now, that's not to say people might not have been having thoughts of suicide for far longer than that, but it's that window is really between the decision to act and the action itself. And what we also know is that if there was some barrier to accessing a person's initial method for suicide, um, for example, a gun lock or a gun being placed in a safe or a gun being separated from ammunition within the house, for example, that gives people a time to either reconsider their action or they might make the attempt with a method that's significantly less lethal. And people who survive a significant suicide attempt 
are highly unlikely to try again. So if we can increase that window between the decision to act and the action itself, we significantly increase the possibility of that person's survival. What are the ways that a VA has identified uh, in attempting to do that? In November 19, they implemented a suicide risk identification strategy uh, that included standardized suicide risk screening. And if the patient screened positive for a suicide risk, uh, they did a, a comprehensive suicide risk evaluation. A year later, they implemented uh, one-time mandatory uh, lethal means safety education and counseling for required for all VHA healthcare providers, uh, including vet center counselors. Uh, and then, and then in March 2022, they implemented a one-time LMS uh, uh, again lethal lethal means training uh, within 90 days of employment for all new healthcare providers and any current provider who has not completed the course. Um, what did we find? Uh, with respect uh, to that training? Well, what we found was that generally, VHA staff was compliant with uh, doing the training and with doing the suicide risk screenings. However, those screenings and that training are only as successful as a person's utilization of that training. Are you actually having the conversation about access to lethal means? Are you actually talking about plans for safe storage of those lethal means when you're completing a safety plan? And so to examine that, we actually reviewed 480 patients who either had a fatal firearm-related suicide or a non-fatal firearm-related suicide behavior in order to see whether these electronic health records had documentation of these types of conversations. Were they being asked about their access to firearms? Were the safety plans including information about how to try and mitigate that access in a safe way? And, um, Unfortunately, there was a not insignificant percentage of electronic health records that didn't include that documentation. Um, and so, as I said, the training is excellent, requiring the completion of these suicide risk screenings and safety planning is excellent, but it's only as useful as the implementation. So what were the, uh, the final recommendations from this report? We made seven recommendations to the Undersecretary for Health related to our evaluation. And these involved things like compliance with suicide risk screening and training requirements. Uh, but I think what was most important was that we asked that it be ensured that when clinicians complete these suicide risk evaluations, that someone is making sure that they include this discussion and documentation about access to lethal means, about access to firearms and safe storage, and that someone is monitoring the compliance with that aspect of these suicide risk screenings and safety planning. We also asked that the Undersecretary for Health evaluate 
perceived barriers to completing these parts of the suicide risk identification and the safety plan because I don't want to assume that staff are not doing it for whatever reason. We know that people experience barriers to having these conversations, whether they are cultural barriers or educational barriers, we should figure out what those are from a systems perspective and address that in order to help staff better help veterans. Dr. Winter, this is a this is a tough topic and I really appreciate you you being here to to have this conversation about it. Uh, uh, how receptive was VA to the findings of this report? So I was actually really, really pleased. Um, VHA actually received this report very well. Um, they seemed to appreciate reading it. They certainly appreciated the amount of effort and analysis that went into our findings and recommendations. They actually asked um, you know, for our data so that they could look at it and, you know, help along some of their analysis that they had already been doing in parallel with our report. And I'm really hopeful that there will be a significant impact for veteran care and suicide prevention that comes out of this. Well, Dr. Winter, this is a this is an excellent example of the, the very important oversight work that uh, uh, our Office of Healthcare Inspections conducts, as well as you know the the VAOIG uh, in general. I, again, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Before I turn the podcast over to Adam for uh, this month's highlights, I would like to mention if if you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, uh, please call the Veterans Crisis Line. Dial nine eight eight and then press one. Remember, you're not alone. The Veterans Crisis Line is is here for you. You don't have to be enrolled in VA benefits or health care to call. With that, I'll now turn the uh, podcast over to Adam Roy for this month's highlights. Thanks, Fred. Now some highlights of the work the VA OIG completed in December 2022. I'll start with recent investigative updates related to education fraud. In the first one, a defendant was sentenced for their role in multiple education benefit fraud schemes. A proactive investigation by the VA OIG identified an individual who served as a school certifying official and course director for a for-profit non-college degree granting diving school and later became a consultant and an instructor for another diving school. The investigation revealed that the defendant made false representations to VA regarding the school's hours of instruction for each of their VA approved courses, attendance and course completion dates, payments received from non-VA students, and compliance with the 8515 rule. To qualify for post-9-11 GI Bill funding, a school must certify that no more than 85% of the students in any course are receiving VA benefits. This requirement, commonly referred to as the 8515 rule, is intended to prevent abuse of GI Bill funding by ensuring that VA is paying fair market value tuition rates since at least 15% of the students would be paying the same rate with non-VA funds. The defendant was sentenced in the Southern District of Georgia to over four years in prison, three years of probation, and restitution of more than $6 million. In another education-related fraud scheme, a VA OIG investigation resulted in a civil complaint alleging that a company that provides technology education courses violated the False Claims Act by knowingly submitting inflated tuition benefit claims to VA. Under the post-9-11 GI Bill, 
VA pays the actual net cost for tuition and fees charged by the school after it has applied any scholarships, waivers, grants, or other assistance to defray those costs. This requirement is commonly referred to as the last payer rule, which ensures that VA is the payer of last resort and receives the benefit of any tuition-based financial support available to a student. The complaint alleges the company repeatedly reported tuition and fees to VA on student invoices that did not include deductions for tuition scholarships, grants, or waivers it provided to certain veterans. The last payer rule was allegedly violated by the company at five school locations in Illinois, Ohio, and Michigan. The civil complaint was filed in the Eastern District of Michigan. Recently, the VA OIG published a fraud alert on stopping education benefits fraud. The VA OIG asks you to report any VA-approved school that is billing veterans whose enrollment is funded by VA a higher tuition rate than civilian students for the same courses. VA-approved schools that engage in education benefits fraud often advertise a lower tuition rate than they are billing VA for veteran student enrollments, offer discounts, tuition waivers, or scholarships exclusively to civilian students, or bill at least 20% more than non-VA-approved schools with similar course offerings. If these practices sound familiar, or you know a veteran taking education courses from a school that may be engaging in education fraud, I encourage you to submit a complaint to the VA OIG hotline. If you have any questions about the GI Bill or other VA education benefits, visit the GI Bill School Feedback Tool at va.gov or call 888-442-4551. This fraud alert is the third in a series of periodic alerts for fraud and other crimes. Visit the VA OIG website to learn more about potential indicators for 10 types of fraud. Now an update on two recent settlements related to resolving False Claims Act allegations. In the first, a multi-agency investigation resolved allegations that a cardiac monitoring company submitted claims to federal health care programs for heart monitoring tests that were performed in part outside the United States, which violates federal law and in many cases by technicians who are not qualified to perform such tests. The defendants entered into a civil settlement in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania under which the companies agreed to pay more than $44.8 million to resolve those alleged False Claims Act violations. Of this amount, VA will receive $681,000. The VA OIG, Office of Personal Management OIG, Department of Health and Human Services OIG, and Defense Criminal Investigative Service conducted this investigation. In the second, a healthcare device manufacturer agreed to pay $11.36 million to resolve False Claims Act allegations also in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. The false claims were allegedly made in pre-market approval applications submitted to FDA that pertain to radio frequency emissions generated by some of the company's cochlear implant sound processors. VA was one of several federal agencies that purchased these systems containing the alleged non-compliant sound processors. The $11.36 million civil settlement includes more than $5.6 million in restitution, of which VA will receive approximately $500,000. This investigation was also conducted by the VA OIG, Office of Personal Management OIG, Department of Health and Human Services OIG, and Defense Criminal Investigative Service. This month's final investigative update focuses on pandemic-related fraud. In March 2021, a business owner made fraudulent misrepresentations in an attempt to secure orders from VA for face masks and other personal protective equipment, or PPE, that would have totaled more than $806 million. This individual promised that he could obtain millions of genuine 3M masks from domestic factories, but knew that fulfilling the orders would not be possible. He attempted to acquire an upfront payment from VA of over $3 million and received approximately $7.4 million from state governments and private entities by making similar false representations regarding his ability to get the equipment. 
The defendant was sentenced in the Western District of New York to over 20 years in prison and restitution of $107 million after previously pleading guilty to wire fraud in connection with this COVID-19 scam in an unrelated Ponzi scheme. He also agreed to forfeit approximately $3.2 million that was seized by the VAOIG and Homeland Security investigations. In December, the VAOIG published eight reports, including a joint report published by the Pandemic Response Accountability Committees, or PRAC, healthcare subgroup. I'll highlight a few of them now. The Office of Audits and Evaluations published a report titled VBA's Compensation Service Did Not Fully Accommodate Veterans with Visual Impairments. In this review, the OIG examined whether VBA's compensation service complied with accessibility requirements for communicating benefits-related information to veterans with visual impairments. We found that the compensation service did not fully comply with Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which requires that visually impaired veterans have meaningful access to federal programs, including benefit programs operated by VBA. A lack of coordination by the compensation service with relevant agencies, along with its failure to comply with VA-wide accessibility implementation requirements, will continue to make it more difficult for veterans with visual impairments to fully participate in the disability compensation program. The report listed five recommendations. One, update the process for accommodating visually impaired veterans. Two, update the adjudication procedures. Three, develop and implement a quality assurance mechanism. Four, assign accessibility coordinators. And five, coordinate a process to ensure visually impaired veterans are informed of the availability of accommodations. In another review by the Office of Audits and Evaluations, we identified that improvements were needed to reduce duplicate payments by VHA and Medicare and ensure that VHA had authorized community medical services. We collaborated with the Department of Health and Human Services, OIG, which is currently conducting its own review of duplicate Medicare payments to better understand duplicate payments and confirm that they had occurred. The VA OIG determined that VHA and Medicare made potential duplicate claim payments for community care services that were authorized by VHA. Because VHA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services do not share healthcare claims data, Neither agency is aware of claims paid by the other agency. Without an interagency system, the risk of duplication is increased, and it may be difficult to determine which agency should pay the claim and which agency can collect overpayments. The VA OIG recommended that VHA work with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to establish a data sharing agreement with VA to limit duplicate claims payments. We also recommended identifying overpayments made for care provided to dual eligible veterans that were not authorized by VHA and ensure documentation of care is completed or that VA seeks reimbursement for any unauthorized care. Finally, the OIG recommended making sure all non-emergent community care is pre-authorized and that documentation for all authorizations is complete and properly stored before services are provided. On December 1st, 2022, the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee's healthcare subgroup published the report Insights on Telehealth Use and Program Integrity Risks Across Selected Healthcare Programs During the Pandemic. The subgroup developed this report to share insights about the expansion and the emerging risks of telehealth in selected programs across six agencies during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. The programs included VHA, Medicare, TRICARE, Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, and Department of Justice Prisoner Healthcare Services. The expansion of telehealth services clearly helped millions of individuals access healthcare during the crisis, but also introduced integrity risks associated with billing, including high-volume billing, duplicate claims, and inappropriate charges for the most expensive telehealth services. The study found that program integrity can be strengthened 
by implementing ongoing monitoring of telehealth services, developing controls to prevent inappropriate payments, educating providers and individuals about telehealth, collecting additional data to support oversight, and collecting and reviewing data about the impact of telehealth on quality of care. The Prax Healthcare subgroup consists of the Inspector Generals from the Department of Veteran Affairs, Justice, Defense, Labor, Health and Human Services, and the Office of Personnel Management. Wrapping up reports, in December, the VA OIG also published two comprehensive healthcare inspection program or CHIP reports. These reports are one element of the OIG's overall efforts to ensure that the nation's veterans receive high quality and timely VA healthcare services. The inspections are performed approximately every three years for each facility. December's CHIP reports focused on the Louisville VA Medical Center and the Lexington VA Healthcare System, both in Kentucky. For more information about these and the other reports the VA OIG published in December, go to our website at va.gov forward slash OIG and click on reports under the publications tab. That's it for this episode of Veteran Oversight Now. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to our repeat listeners and encourage those who may be listening for the first time to subscribe to this podcast, as well as Inside Oversight, another VA OIG podcast that explores in detail some of our published reports. Find us on all major podcast directories like Apple, Google, and Spotify. All podcasts are also available on our YouTube channel. Search for at Vet Affairs OIG. Like what you hear, sign up for email alerts. We regularly send notifications when reports are published, updates to ongoing investigations, as well as critical information impacting veterans like the fraud alert I mentioned earlier. You can sign up for email alerts right from our homepage. Wishing you a prosperous 2023, and as always, thank you for tuning in. podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. Veteran Oversight Now is produced by the Office of Communications and Public Affairs and is available at va.gov forward slash OIG. Tune in monthly to hear how the VA OIG serves veterans, their families, and caregivers through meaningful independent oversight. Check out the website for more on the VA OIG oversight mission. Read current reports and keep up to date on the latest criminal investigations. Report potential crimes related to VA, waste or mismanagement, potential violations of laws, rules or regulations, or risks to patients, employees, or property to the OIG online or call the hotline at 1-800-488-8244. If you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, Call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 and speak with a qualified responder now.